Well, a very warm welcome to you uh, this morning. If you're watching online or if you're with us in the building, uh, it's wonderful to have you as we as we gather to worship God together. If you're a guest here, if you haven't been here before, uh, please do stay for, for tea and coffee afterwards. It would be great to get to know you a little bit more. Uh, this morning, uh, we're looking at just a, a one-off uh, message from 1 Corinthians 15, thinking about the hope, the truth, the certainty of the resurrection. And so uh, we look forward to hearing about that later. And this morning, as we think of the, the resurrection, we're thinking of the, the amazing hope that we have through that, the amazing gift uh, that God gives to us by his grace. Um, as Paul speaks about that in Ephesians, the amazing uh, grace of God to us, a sinful people, totally undeserving. As he says in Ephesians chapter 2 from verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray as we come to God together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your rich, abundant, lavish grace to us. We thank you that we are so undeserving and yet you seek to love us. You seek to show your grace to us. We thank you for the hope of the resurrection and we pray that you would help us to see that hope this morning, to live in light of that hope. Give us hearts which are soft to receive your word, ears which are open that we would be receptive to your word. We ask this for your glory and our good. Amen. Well, we're going to um, just be thinking about the children just for a moment. The, the children will be uh, looking at uh, the parable of uh, the wedding banquet from uh, Matthew chapter 22 uh, in S Club. Um, and the invitation there for everyone is to, to freely come and to enjoy the banquet in heaven, not to try and work our way to heaven, but to freely receive it uh, by what Jesus has done for us. Uh, Christina will be will be leading that, and so uh, if you're of that age for Sunday school, please do pop out to that. The impact group uh, will be remaining in with us. So let me pray for the children as they go out. And Father God, we thank you for uh, the good news of the gospel, and the good news that it is a, a gift of grace uh, to all those who come to Jesus. We thank you that we can enjoy that banquet through what you have done for us. May the young people, the young children, know that for themselves in their hearts. Know that uh, Jesus is the one who has come to bring them to that banquet. And we pray for your blessing on Christina as she teaches and all those helping for the young people to have open hearts to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Psalm 121 says... I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will keep you over your coming and going. 
both now and forevermore. Lord, we thank you that you are watching over us, that you are with us, that you are present in everything, in all things, that you help us, that you never slumber nor sleep, that you are ever-present in times of trouble, in times of joy, that you are with us in everything. We pray, Father, that you would help us to look to you in all things, that you are present in our lives. And we pray, Father, that you would forgive us for the times that we have lived as if you don't exist, as if you are not part of our lives. We pray, Father, that you would forgive us for the times that we have lived by ourselves and for ourselves. We pray, Father, that you would help us to live in light of the fact that you are present with us by your Spirit. We would be dependent upon you every moment of the day. We pray that you would forgive us for the times, Lord, where we have not served others as we should, instead seeking to serve ourselves when we have walked in sin rather than walking by the Spirit. We pray, Father, that you would forgive us as we look to Jesus who has cleansed us of all our sins. We thank you that you will not ever forsake us or leave us, that you are our Heavenly Father who loves us. And Father, as we pray for those uh, far from us as well, we pray, Father, for our missionaries, and we pray, Father, for for Julian and and Lydia in Kalarash in Romania. We pray, Father, for their continual ministry there, that they would have the the gospel at the center of all of the, the work that is done there. We pray, Father, for for Julian, as he seeks to meet the material, the pastoral, and the spiritual needs of the people, would you give him wisdom and provision for that? Pray for him and Dan as well as they cultivate good relationships with people to share the gospel through that. And we pray, Father, that they would be a real encouragement as they seek to minister in the different areas of life in which they are placed. Pray too for, for other missionaries, thinking of Josh and Helen, who are back in the UK at the moment. And we pray, Father, for them that that would be a, a restful and refreshing time. We pray as well for Helen and the, uh, her pregnancy. Father, that, that would go smoothly uh, and the delivery of a, a little baby girl would, would come uh, safely and well. And Father, we do pray for others in the church family uh, who are struggling at the moment. We pray especially for Peter Hopcroft, uh, being recently admitted to hospital and, and diagnosed with leukemia. Lord, we pray for this bleed on the brain, that that would be absorbed quickly, that he would be able to begin chemotherapy very soon. We pray, Father, for your healing hand to be upon him. But we thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign in everything. You are in control of every detail of our lives and that we can trust you with that. We pray, Father, for for Wendy, that, that she would know your peace and your comfort at this time. Pray, Lord, for others who are who know people close to them, who are struggling with health. We pray for Colin McIntosh's brother Ewan. Pray, Father, that you would reveal yourself to him in these final days of his life. Pray, Father, and give you thanks for, for Robbie and, and Loveday and their recovery uh, from COVID. We pray, Father, for their continual uh, development in health. We pray, Father, for, for Jean and Gerald as well, uh, that you would help them and strengthen them too. Lord, for anyone on our heart, help us just to take this moment just to pray for them, that you would draw close to them at this time. And Lord, we do pray as well for for others uh, seeking to serve you. We we thank you for for Cal and Tash, and we pray for them as they settle into life in Buckingham. 
And pray, Father, for their life and ministry there, that that would be a, a true blessing and joy there. And we thank you, Lord, for uh, times of refreshment as well. We thank you for many people who have enjoyed holiday. We pray for, for Sarb and Karen this, uh, this coming uh, week or two, that they would enjoy refreshment and time away. We thank you for Nathan and Lisa, who are enjoying that right now. Um, Lord, would each of our, our time away, our holidays, uh, be a refreshment, a time to fill our hearts with uh, your goodness to us. We pray, Father, for uh, the, the outreach as well, for the men's breakfast happening on the 9th of September at Base Cafe in the village. We pray, Father, for good opportunities to, to share uh, the hope that we have through that, to build good friendships with other men, to, to share our lives together as well. And we pray, Father, as we come to your word now, we pray for Sarah as she reads it, uh, that we would be attentive to it. And for Sarb as he preaches, uh, would you give him uh, your spirit to empower him to preach uh, your word to us. We pray that we would we'd not just be listeners of your word, but be doers of your word, that we would apply all the truths of the gospel in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I'm going to invite up Sarah, who will give our reading from 1 Corinthians 15. This morning's readings from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 24, and then verses 52 to 58. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If we only for this life we have hope in Christ, 
we are, of all people, most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed, clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Thanks very much, Lee, for reading for us. Well, before we start, let's, uh, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you so much uh, for your word. I pray that uh, as we come to it now, uh, would you uh, just make our minds uh, alive to your truths by your spirit, Uh, Would you ready our hearts? Uh, Might we be eager uh, to receive uh, your word from you? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Please do keep your Bibles open. It would be a great help to me if you're able to to follow along as we go. Uh, A friend of mine uh, who's uh, not a Christian, he's a very, very bright chap, a classics graduate from Cambridge, uh, and he has a fear that hangs over... Uh, his life, uh, and uh, it's the fear of death. Uh, not a fear of dying, per se, but a fear of death. What's on the other side? And it's a fear that uh, it stains, it discolors, uh, and takes the shine off every part of his life. And this fear hangs over him rather like a dark cloud on a beautiful sunny day, tainting all the good things. But Christianity reveals that death is not the end. Uh, It recognises the agony and and the pain of death, the separation that that causes, but it reveals also the resurrection. The resurrection as a certain truth. Not as pie in the sky, but steak on the plate. It not only reveals the truth of it, But by the resurrection comes a power that sustains and grows the church and transforms everyone who believes in Jesus. So as we look at this reading this morning, I'd like us just to see three things. Firstly, the resurrection truth. Uh, Secondly, the power of the resurrection, particularly in the early church. And finally, the power really to transform us today. So firstly, the resurrection truth. 
Uh, I'm sure that we all have friends that if we were to ask them um, what they think about the resurrection, to share their own notion of it, um, I'm sure that we all have friends who would say, nah, not really. Impossible. Things like that just don't happen. People die and that's the end of things. And we've heard uh, the voice, haven't we, of extreme uh, atheists like Dawkins that tell us that there is nothing beyond death. Uh, we've, we've heard humanists and Simba's father in The Lion King uh, tell us that uh, although we eat the animals, uh, that we die and we become fertilizer and the, animal, and the animals eat the grass. And there's a catchy song that kind of goes along with that whole philosophy of the circle of life. And there's a gentle denial uh, that bleeds into uh, all of our thinking uh, about the lack of resurrection hope. But at the time when Jesus uh, walked the earth and the centuries leading up to his incarnation, the notion of resurrection was considered to be utterly implausible, completely illogical and foolish. Uh, the ancient world, Homer's writings were the authoritative source of much of the thinking in the ancient world uh, about uh, nobility, character, uh, and the afterlife. And in Homer's writings, uh, he puts these words in Apollo's mouth uh, as he speaks to the Athenian high court, the Areopagus. And he famously says this, Once a man has died and the dust has soaked up his blood, there is no resurrection. Now, the New Testament uh, writer, um, uh, scholar, uh, N.T. Wright, he says this, Christianity was born into a world where its central claim, that of the resurrection, was completely understood as being impossible. Many believed the dead were non-existent, and outside Judaism, nobody believed in resurrection. In the Roman world, everybody knew dead people didn't and couldn't come back to bodily life. Now, in the civilized world of Jesus' time, and I guess for us in downtown New York, Paris, and Tokyo, uh, the civilized world knew that there was no resurrection. It was impossible. And it doesn't matter who you were, where you were, even the ruling classes and the average man on the street, the notion of resurrection was considered impossible. For all people, all classes, all places, they thought that resurrection was utterly impossible. And so, to such people, the first Christians come along and say that God did, in fact, raise Jesus from the dead. And the only reason that they could have said that or claimed that can only be because it must have been true. The early Christians knew that what they were saying would be considered utterly shocking and unbelievable to the ears of those around them. And Paul writes in this letter to new believers uh, in the Greek city of Corinth, where the notion of resurrection was considered implausible, impossible, and anti-intellectual. And there were some in the church who still couldn't or wouldn't believe that the resurrection had happened. And in that letter, he writes this in verses 16 through 19. Take a look with me. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. To the church in Corinth who have been raised not believing in any sort of resurrection, Paul says that the resurrection isn't some 
vague part of Christian belief that you can choose to ignore or believe uh, or simply pay lip service to. No. The resurrection is the one thing that validates everything that Christians believe about Jesus and God's work of salvation, redemption and judgment. Without resurrection, Paul says, our faith is futile. Without the resurrection, Paul says, we're still under the penalty of our rebellion against God, still in our sins. If there was no resurrection, then we are to be pitied more than all. So, without the resurrection, Christianity makes absolutely no sense, says Paul. Worse than that, says Paul in verse 15, uh, if there has been no resurrection, those of us who tell the world that there has been, well, we're false witnesses of what God has done or said. Paul's telling them and us, even though you've been brought up not to believe in the resurrection, this is the very thing that God has done. Now, why can we be confident of the resurrection? Well, for the same reason that the early church could. Take a look with me at verses 3 through 8, what Paul says. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures, and after that he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve, After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Let's just see three things in this text. Firstly, right at the heart of the Christian message, the truth of the good news, which he distills for us, doesn't he, just in two verses, verses three and four, he tells us that Jesus, God's only son, came in love to save us. In love he came to pay the price for our rebellion against God, not because we are worthy, but because we are helpless, and Jesus is worthy. He came to rescue us, not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. As our substitute, he was buried and on the third day he rose again. So we see that resurrection is right there in the heart of the Christian message. If we distill the Christian message down to just two verses, you've got to have the resurrection right there. Uh, Secondly, uh, that Christian faith is not a philosophical school of thought dreamt up by people down the ages. It's not... First and foremost, I'll say this very carefully, it's not, first and foremost, good advice on how we're to live. There is instruction in scripture about how we live in the light of what's been done, but first and foremost, Christianity is not good advice. But rather, Paul tells us here that Christianity is rooted in history. It's grounded in the reality of what God has actually done it's rooted in eyewitness accounts of the people who saw what god had done who were there and relayed it christianity isn't a philosophy it's rooted in a person the god man jesus christ christianity is not good advice it's good news 
And so here, Paul tells us that this risen Jesus appeared to people. He tells us four times, just in these few verses, that Jesus appeared. He appeared to Cephas, or or Peter. He appeared to the twelve, the apostles. He appeared then on one occasion to more than 500 people. Then he appeared to James and the other disciples. And finally, Jesus appeared to Paul. Now, all of this is written in a way to say to the reader, what, you don't believe that Jesus rose again? Well, why don't you ask the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, the two main guys, Cephas and James, ask them, because the church in Jerusalem is rooted on the same truth, the resurrection truth. And not just the leaders, there were hundreds of people, Paul says. At one time, people who were still alive, hundreds who saw the risen Jesus. It's not a hallucination. It's confirmation of the resurrection. If you don't believe me, says Paul, ask them. And thirdly, Paul reminds us at the end of the verse that all this happened in accordance with scripture. Uh, Paul here is talking about the old, what we call the Old Testament. Uh, it means that God himself revealed in the Old Testament that his plan all along was to send Jesus. For him to die in our place bearing our sin. And for God to raise Jesus from the dead in the middle of history. Indeed, three days after his death, it appeared in line with the stated good plan of God. Stated hundreds of years before Jesus came. So the truth of the resurrection is the validating key at the heart of the Christian message that Paul preached. And as people in the early church started to see that, we see an explosive growth in the church. And that's our second point, the power of the resurrection in the early church. Now, the resurrection proves that those who trust in Jesus are declared right before God. That we have moved from death to life. That we become children of God. And that God's love is settled upon us and it will never be taken away from us. That we will journey safely through death to be with God forever. There's a physical resurrection in a new heavens and a new earth. And all because of God's love for us. Not because we deserve it or we could earn it because we can't. It's an unmerited gift of grace. And as Jesus was resurrected and ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. And by the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in their hearts, they knew the love of God. They tangibly knew the love of God. And that transformed people, all people who believed, whether they were rich or poor. Uh, For the slaves uh, who were living in grinding poverty, to the marginalized, to the outcast, there was a new status that was bestowed upon them. They were children of the living God, a status higher than any king that ruled at the time, then and now. And that they would raised, they would be raised up and they would live and reign with the king of kings. And for the rich, they realized the mercy that had been shown to them and that all the things that they had came to them as a gift from God in heaven. All their status, their money, their possessions, they then turn these to the use and care of others. 
The world order was turned on its head. Christians had a joy and a purpose that nothing in the world could take away. Neither the persecution, neither disease. So look at, just look at those two things here, persecution and disease. Uh, firstly, persecution. Uh, when Christians were persecuted, it didn't stop them loving Christ. When they were fed to the beasts in the arena, they sang hymns as they were savaged to death. Torture wouldn't stop them trusting in the Lord Jesus. They would not recant their faith. When hundreds were crucified at one time, covered in pitch and set ablaze on the road to Rome, hundreds more came forward. As the watching world saw the glorious and joyful lives of the Christians, saw them living and dying for the king, the true king, the king of kings and his kingdom, they knew that those Christians had something. They knew something. They had something wonderful. And that drew more and more people to respond to the resurrection hope and to give their lives and the way that they lived to Jesus. The Christians spoke to the world of the hope that they had, the hope of the resurrection. And the church spread as the gospel was proclaimed. And secondly, uh, disease. Uh, Rodney Stark, uh, who used to be a a professor of sociology and comparative religion at Washington University, uh, wrote this book, uh, The Rise of Christianity. Uh, And he notes that as you plot the growth of the church over the first uh, 300 years after the resurrection, uh, there are two uh, main events in history where the church just exploded uh, in terms of its growth. And that was uh, in AD 165, Uh, and in AD 260. And that's because there were two uh, huge plagues that ran through uh, the Mediterranean at that time. Uh, At their peak, uh, these plagues were killing in Rome 5,000 people a day, over 30,000 people a week, in a city with a population of under a million people. It was absolutely horrible. And there was another plague in 260 AD along the same lines. And there had been letters that uh, Rodney had uh, found and come across from people who were writing at the time that these plagues were tearing through and destroying communities. Uh, And one letter speaks of the response of the Christians. He he says this. um, uh, This is uh, in one of the letters from one of the doctors that left town. Uh, said, most of our uh, brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attended to their every need and ministering to them in Christ and with them departed this life serenely happy for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbours and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. And he goes on and he writes about those who didn't believe and how they responded. And he says this, The heathen, however, behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. As the non-Christians ran out of town, the Christians ran in. As people threw uh, onto the streets those in their household who were ill, Christians 
brought them in to their own homes. Now, the Christians knew that there was a real danger in loving their neighbours this way. Some they nursed back to health, as we heard, but others, they died. And many of the Christians died in that way. They took upon themselves the death of those that they'd been ministering to. I wonder where did they get that idea from? Jesus. They knew that Jesus had left the throne room in heaven. Uh, He didn't count equality with God, something to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself. He broke into our time and our space to rescue us from the only thing that can really kill us. And that's our rebellion against God. In rescuing us, in ministering to us, he took us into his heart and he also took onto himself our death, the death that we deserve. And so the lives of those Christians reflected the certainty of the resurrection. Their lives were shaped by it and defined by it. They knew that death was not the end. So they knew that they could care for and minister to those around them in a most sacrificial way. They knew that they would be raised to eternal life. And that's probably what Paul had in mind. Um, or probably what they had in mind when they read uh, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth uh, in verses uh, 52 and 53. Take a look with me. It says, For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. And so the Christians poured themselves out in love and care of others. And with that witness and with that proclamation of the gospel, the impact on the communities around them was absolutely vast. There was real power in the witness of that community. When they spoke about Jesus and the reason for the hope that they had, people could see that the Christians had a power, they had a they had a joy that was beautiful to behold. And it was something that the people all around them wanted, longed for, for themselves. And in the decade after these two, plagues, these two plagues, the church just exploded in growth. As people saw the truth and the power of the resurrection in the lives of the believers, they turned and put their trust in Jesus. Uh, the strapline to uh, his book, Stark's book, is how the obscure, marginal Jesus movement came, became the dominant religious force in the Western world in a few centuries. Stark notes that really the only way to explain how half the Greco-Roman Empire became Christian inside 300 years is because there was a resurrection. He's not a believer, but he concludes that that is the only viable explanation for how half the Greco-Roman world became Christian inside 300 years. The spirit-powered proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus transformed the world. Now, some of you may think, well, that was then. What about now? And that brings us to our final point. The power of the resurrection and us today. Uh, Take a look with me at verses uh, 1 through 3, where Paul writes this. Uh, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. 
By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. See, God makes us right with him because of what he has done for us in Christ. Christ's perfect record offered to us as a free gift. That truth is eternal and it's unchanging. The gospel that saved then is the same gospel that saves now. And it's this message, this news that Paul received from the resurrected Jesus that he passed on to the first believers. It's the eyewitness account and the testimony of the first believers recorded in scripture that we are also called to believe. So what Paul received is what has been passed on to us, that same resurrection hope. And the question then is, how does the certainty of the resurrection impact us? The way that we live each day, the way that we live each day is shaped by what we believe about our tomorrows. Let me say that again. The way that we live each day now is shaped by what we believe about our tomorrows. What we believe about the future has a power to come in and shape everything that we do today. Now, a thought experiment to help us think this through. Uh, Imagine that a lady is uh, swept off her feet by a beautiful man and he asks her to marry him. And she says, squealing with delight, yes, yes, she says. Now, the wedding is set for some date in January. And her heart now, her heart now is filled with the prospect of being united to her husband, to be found in his arms, to know the reality of his love, his affection and his protection. The joy of that future anticipation, as she looks forward to the truth of the certainty of that wedding day, that joy just overflows and pours into every aspect of her today. If she's slighted by someone, well, it doesn't hurt quite so much because she knows now, knows now the love of her future husband. She will read and she will reread the love letters that he sends. Send love letters. And she won't think that it was time wasted or something that she didn't want to do. She'll have the capacity also to love others because of the love that floods and overflows in her own heart. She'll meet situations with grace and delight because she can taste something now of the sweetness of the day when she will be married. Dark days won't seem so gloomy to her Her eyes and her heart are fixed on the reality of that which is to come. And if that's true, and if that's true of an earthly wedding, how much more of a heavenly wedding? Those of us who believe and trust in Jesus, the Bible calls us the bride of Christ. I'm the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ, you and me. And if Jesus uh, doesn't come back before we die, we know that we will be resurrected and presented to the Lord Jesus as his bride. 
We'll have a resurrection body, uh, something that Paul describes as imperishable and uncorruptible. Uh, we'll be, we will rule and we will reign with Christ. Uh, all evil, all evil will be ended and all wrongs will be put right. There'll be no more death, no more addiction, no more broken families or relationships, no hatred, no hunger, no marginalization of people, no injustice. We will be in a place where we will live face to face with God, where we will be able to submerge ourselves entirely, completely and eternally in his love for us. We will never be parted from that. And the resurrection tells us that that is the reality that awaits those who believe. And as we study God's word, his love letter to us, the Holy Spirit makes that love alive in our hearts. So friends, let him do that work in your hearts. Let him make those promises alive in your heart. Pray those truths hot in your own heart. Meditate on the truths of what awaits you. Let that future resurrection hope bleed into your today and transform your lives. And the resurrection changes uh, three things for those who believe. It changes our past, changes our present, and it changes our future. Firstly, the past. Uh, The resurrection shows that we have indeed been made right with God. It shows us that all of our rebellion against God has been paid for, for everyone who believes. That no matter what we have done, no matter what hurt we've caused, what pain and suffering that we have caused, that the price of our rebellion against God, past, present, future, all of that has been paid for in full. Now, Paul, who wrote this letter, had a very, very checkered past. Paul had persecuted the early church. He'd hounded people in it. He'd driven them to jail, even to death itself. His rebellion was forgiven. And so for us, there is nothing that we have done that if we do not turn back and say sorry to Jesus and turn and trust and accept in him, there is nothing that cannot be forgiven. There is nothing that we can do if we There's nothing that we can do that God cannot forgive us for if we will just turn back to him. And the claims and the chains that bound us, our addictions, our anger, our fear, our pride, those chains, whatever they are, will be broken as we allow the Holy Spirit to apply the truth of what God has done to our hearts. Those chains will lose their hold and their grip on us. Secondly, the present. Our heart's desire now will be to grow in love and knowledge of the one who saved us. The one through whom the resurrection hope comes. God's water is rich. God's word, rather, is rich food for the soul. And the living water that truly quenches our thirst. The resurrection hope will take away the emptiness in our lives And our lives will be filled with meaning, with joy, and with purpose. One example, I mean, for instance, our work is redeemed. We go to work knowing it is a good thing, and we work hard at it. But it's no longer the ultimate thing. 
But in our place of work, by prayer, by winsome word and by example, we can be the aroma of Christ. Now we also we love uh, people outside the church, not because they're an evangelism project, but rather like the people in the early church who poured themselves out for those who were suffering in those plagues, just because God loves them. And we pray for opportunities to share the reason for the hope that comes. And as we do that, Paul reminds us in verse 58 that as we work for the Lord, nothing that we do is in vain. Nothing that we do is in vain. Our lives filled with meaning, significance and purpose. We live now for the eternal treasure that's being stored up in heaven that will be ours through the resurrection. And we will love people inside the church as well and across our own family. Our relationships will be marked by a deep desire to see one another flourish. We'll be an encouragement to one another, building one another up, loving one another sacrificially, and where there are disagreements, looking to keep accounts short and earnestly seeking to forgive and to reconcile. We will be a magnetic community, drawing others who will come and say, wow, I don't know what it is that they have, but I want that. I want that. Finally, the future. Uh, The resurrection tells us that Jesus truly is the one, the only one, who ever loved God with all his heart, all his mind, all his soul and his strength, and who loved his neighbor as himself. The only one. He's the only one who obeyed God perfectly, and the only one who deserves to be in heaven. But because he paid the price for our rebellion, amazingly, for those who, who believe, we are welcomed to join him. Through the resurrection, we're invited into heaven, into heaven, wearing the robes of righteousness that really only belong to Jesus. In a new heavens and a new earth where we will share in Jesus's victory. And we do nothing other than trust in Jesus and we get to be on that victory parade, that ticker tape parade with Jesus. We share in the inheritance of Jesus eternally. The resurrection hope changes everything. Our past, our present, and our future. I wonder if if we really, really live with the increasing joy, purpose, and certainty of the resurrection in our lives. Uh, If not, meditate on it. Pray it hot in your hearts allow the certainty of the resurrection to grow from an acorn to a mighty oak in your own lives to close uh, the writer and theologian C.S. Lewis in his reflections on the resurrection he says this the New Testament writers tell us that Christ's rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe Jesus is described as the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because Jesus has been raised from the dead. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the truth and the certainty of the resurrection. I thank you that through the resurrection, we find ourselves, if we trust in the Lord Jesus, as being right before you. Thank you for that amazing truth. I thank you for the promises that are ours because of what Christ has done. Father, help us to keep our eyes fixed on uh, the Lord Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, ruling and reigning, and knowing that we are your children, that we would know by the power of your spirit, your love poured into our hearts. I pray that as we come to your word, as we reflect on the glory of who you are, that by your spirit, you would shape and mold us to be the people who live resurrection lives. Empower our witness, glorify, uh, might you be glorified through our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to pray about anything from the service or maybe something that's on your heart as well, there's a prayer ministry team in the corner there, so please do to use that to pray for one another, maybe where you are as well. Uh, this evening we're, we're continuing on the theme of resurrection uh, from the, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. Neil will be preaching on Jesus, the one who raises the dead. Let me close with the words from 1 Peter that speaks of that hope of the resurrection. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Amen.